Welcome, everybody, to Creating a Family, talk about foster, adoptive, and kinship care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am both the host of this show as well as the director of the nonprofit, creatingafamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking with Susan Keo Ito about her new memoir, I Would Meet You Anywhere, an adoption memoir. Susan is the co-editor of the literary anthology, A Ghost at Heart's Edge, Stories and Poems of Adoption. She is a writer, a poet, and a performer. Susan Kiyo Ito, welcome to Creating a Family. I am thrilled to have you here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. I loved your book. First of all, I'm just from a, a literary standpoint, it was so beautifully written. It places it, it, it just almost felt poetic. I, I don't know if that was your intent, but it was, it was beautifully written. I fell in love with it, and it was one that I didn't want to put down. And that says a lot <laughs> for me anyway. <laughs> I so appreciated your openness. And at times it was raw, but I also felt, I don't know, it just showed such resilience. I truly think, and I say this to all the adoptive parents out there, this is a book you should pick up and read. It is a good book for us as adoptive parents. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But just briefly, tell us your story your adoption story, so that people will kind of have an idea of where we are. And then I'd like to start talking about all the things I wrote while I was reading the book. Wonderful. Sure. In a nutshell, I was born in the state of New York and adopted by my adoptive parents at about three and a half, four months old, and then grew up in New Jersey. And I am biracial, Japanese and Caucasian, and my adoptive parents are both Japanese Americans. So I think that was a big part of my story. And I searched for my birth mother starting when I was in college and found her at the age of 20. And the book is really about the ups and downs of a very lifelong relationship and a relationship with everyone, relationship with my parents, relationship with my mm-hmm. birth mother, and then ultimately toward the end finding a paternal birth family as well. And it's really about an exploration of family, identity, belonging, all the things. Yeah. It's not giving anything away because it becomes apparent as soon as you find your birth mom, Yumi, that there is tension in that relationship. It is not a smooth nor an easy relationship. And I wondered at times, it felt like much of the tension was due to her desire to keep you a secret in your desire to be seen. And also, I wondered if it wasn't also her desire to be in control. It felt very much that way throughout. Talk to me some about that relationship. It was up and down. And when it was down, I just I just was so emotionally involved in it. I was like, don't do that to her. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Well, up and down is pretty much it in a, in a nutshell. It was up and down from the very beginning, from the very first day. The first day that I met, we spent several hours together, almost a whole day in a hotel room. And we went through the whole gamut of emotions during that day. You know, just you could feel that tension in all of it. She didn't want to have been found. She did not want to have been found. She felt that she had been promised anonymity and that she had been betrayed by somebody. And I'm, I'm just going to say, I think she found during those first hours that we spent together, both of us really felt a connection in spite of the difficulties. And both of us had a strong ambivalence. And I think that 
if she had said to me on that first day, listen, I don't want any part of this. This wasn't supposed to happen. You know, it would have really been painful, but I think I would have respected that Mm -hmm. because I think that happens in many cases. And the fact that neither of us could really fully let go nor fully be in it. Do you know what I mean? I think exactly. I, I feel like we both felt a pull of connection in spite of everything. And on her part, she never wanted to be found. But once she was found, she kind of still wanted to be connected in a certain way. But she wanted to be in control of how that connection looked at all times. Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. And I felt like I gave her that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was willing to do anything up until a certain point. I felt like I would have done anything to have that relationship. I'm going to quote from the book because I love this passage. Still, you said, I couldn't resist Yumi's siren call. I would crash on the rocks of her. And it really felt like she did have the siren call. It was like she would cut you off and have nothing to do with you for years. And yet if she came back, it was like you were just drawn to her. And I think that's so important for adoptive parents to hear and realize. One of the things that it felt like the book showed was the reality that adoption reunions between adoptees and birth families can be fraught with so many conflicting emotions. And you have two different examples because you have your birth mother and then you have the reunion with your birth father's family. He unfortunately had passed away before you had gotten there. And you mentioned before, you're very active in the adoptee circle, so you are very familiar with with reunions. Did you anticipate beforehand the the complexity of reunion? No, and not at all. (laughs) I think I wrote about it. I mean, I really, I was pretty young when I embarked on this. I was, you know, 18, 19 years old. And I tried to prepare myself as best I could. I think I wrote about this a little bit. I found a book in the library about, it was case studies of adoptees in England where records had been opened and they were able to get their records at a certain age. And it kind of went through 10 different scenarios. And a lot of them were very, very difficult. You know, that somebody had died or somebody, I mean, they were just like a whole gamut of really difficult and a few really positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I tried each one of them on it. Like, what if I found this? What if this happened? Do I I still want to do this? And I realized that I did, even if I was going to find something terrible at the other end, But I never anticipated or I never imagined that it would be the way that it was, which was this kind of roller coaster of neither here nor there. The push me, pull me. Yes. I never anticipated. I mean, I think I would have still done it anyway. I mean, I know I would have still done it anyway. Sure. But I think that was something I did not anticipate that I felt like it was either going to be a good scenario or a bad scenario. And this scenario was both so much. It was so mixed. It was so good and so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Have you subscribed yet to our free monthly e-newsletter? If not, what are you waiting for? It's easy. You simply go to bit.ly slash transracial guide and you can quickly sign up. And when you sign up, you get the transracial guide that's strengthening and supporting your transracial adoptee. It's terrific. It's our thank you gift for signing up. Each month you receive a newsletter where we have curated 
it's usually about four resources. We don't overwhelm you with stuff, but we really try to give you the best of the best of things that can help you. And it's free. It's easy. So go to bit.ly slash transracial guide and sign up today. One of the reasons that I think this book is so important for adoptive parents, and I come from the perspective of an adoptive parent. You probably don't know that. The audience does, but I come from the perspective of an adoptive parent. And one of the reasons that I think this book is so important for us to read is that we say so often to adoptive parents, it's not about us. The desire for reunion, the desire for connection, it's not about us. Don't make it about, uh, I mean, to other parents, don't make it about you because it's not about you. And I think your memoir does such a good job of helping, or maybe it was because that's where my mindset was, but it was about your quest to be whole. And your relationship with your adoptive parents was fine. They were no more perfect than anybody was. But I sense that you grew up feeling loved and treasured by your parents. Yes. I mean, I dedicated the book to them. Mm -hmm. There's a picture of them and me on the front of the book. And it really, in many ways, even though it was about this quest, it was also a love story to them. Yeah. And it's not, your quest had nothing to do with them. Your quest was about your needs. And I think so often adoptive parents, I hope less now, I don't know, I'm not sure if it is less, but I hope less. There is the feeling that if my child wants to search for their birth parents, it is a reflection on me. I am less of a parent. I am less the mom. And this book so clearly says there is nothing about that. By the way, I adored your dad. Oh, he just seemed so, he called you this little rascal. And he was, it was just, he seemed so, and your mom as well. Both of them just were such interesting and, and great characters. But anyway, I do feel that this book is such a good testament to the fact that it's about you as the adoptee. Any thoughts on that? You know, I didn't know anything different when I was going through it. But in retrospect, and also knowing so many adoptees in my life, now hundreds, if not thousands, I really feel like my parents, they were so supportive and so matter of fact and so open. There's a scene where my adoptive parents and my grandmother and my birth mother all go out together. Yeah. I mean, your your mother reached out to Yumi. Yes. Yes, they all did. And it was surreal and, and it <laughs> was bet. bizarre and it was hard. But so many people have said to me, I cannot imagine my parents ever doing that. I can't imagine that they would ever be willing to meet my birth family. And that they were so open. And so if they felt threatened or heard or sad or anything, they never let me see that. They just were there for me. You know, they were there to give me what I needed. And I wanted to bring it together. I didn't want to have these two separate parts of my life, like, oh, I'll meet my birth mother over here. And I've got my family over here. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they were willing to do that. And then after that, they kept up a relationship without me, you know, she would come to town and they would have dinner without me. And they would exchange Christmas cards and, you know, sometimes meet up and they were very friendly with each other. And I really appreciated that. And also when I told my parents because I was nervous to tell them that I was searching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They were, and I can do my mother's accent, what took you so long? We've been waiting years for this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that was how they responded on the phone after they got my letter. 
And it was just such an incredible relief. Oh, yeah. You know, because we as adoptees feel protective of our adoptive parents. We feel like we don't want to hurt the people who have raised us and loved us. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of anxiety about that. And they just put it to rest immediately. What can we do to help you? What do you need? What do you need? How can we help you? And I, at the time, I didn't think that much of it. I was appreciative. But in the many years since hearing that there are many other responses to these things, Mm -hmm. I've really come to appreciate them so much. Yeah. They got it. It wasn't about them. It was about you. And they love you. So what can we do to help you find this? Your reunion with your birth father's family was quite different. Can you describe that one? Well, it happened 40 years later. So it was 45 years later. It was much, much later. And I I don't know, I guess it's a spoiler, not a spoiler, but I ended up finding them through DNA. It's not a spoiler because it's still a great story of how you found them, but go ahead. Okay, okay. <laughs> through Ancestry. And I found my birth father's sister, my aunt, who immediately, immediately was on the phone with me for five seconds and said, welcome to the family. And Mm -hmm. I was just floored. I mean, floored, flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, while my birth mother had been very, I would say, holding things close to the chest, you know, very careful, not wanting to tell anybody, not wanting to give me much information. Mm -hmm. For example, she, you know, never told me her parents' names or anything. It was very limited. My aunt, she wanted me to meet everyone. She invited the entire extended family, Mm -hmm. you know, invited me to come. So I I went to her house and met the entire extended family, many people in the town. Which And she was just blandly, she was taking you out and everybody she met, she goes, this is my niece. I don't know. I don't remember. She said, I just met her. But anyway, she just said, this is my niece. She was including you. My new niece. Yes. Yes. This is my new niece. Yes. No explanation needed. And she didn't give it. This is just my niece. No, no, no. And it was just this overwhelming, I don't know, sense of you're part of us. We recognize you, your family, you're part of us. And we want to tell you, everyone about you. We we want you to know everything. And she gave me this book of family history. It had letters and diary entries that the family had made it, you know, genealogy, family trees, photos that they had hand bound, you know, at a copy door or something. And all of a sudden I had generations of relatives that I knew had known nothing about. It was really overwhelming. And it was something very, very different because even my adoptive family My parents were second generation, so their parents had come from Japan, and neither of my parents knew anything about their Japanese relatives, didn't even know their names, didn't know anything about where they came from. So like the the family tree is only like, only goes up this much, whereas the family tree from my birth father's side, back to the 1500s. I mean, I now have, you know, I keep filling it out on Ancestry, like 9,000 relatives. It's just Good heavens. <laughs> exactly. It's very different. I mean, it was just very, very different. Well, and your birth mom said at one point, and I don't remember actually what led up to it, but she said something to you about, it's like you're trying to worm your way into this family, or you're trying to get you into our family, or something like that. And it's like, well, actually, yes, I am your family. But uh, you didn't say that. No, of course I thought it, but I think that's one of the things that 
I've thought about a lot during this whole time is that well, what makes a family or what makes somebody your cousin or your mother or your sister? And I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that like anything, I think it kind of has to be mutual. I mean, like there's the genetic facts of it that yes, you are related to this person. Yes, you share DNA. But if they don't claim you, I don't really know if that's a relationship or not. I was thinking like, well, I could say that Keanu Reeves is my boyfriend, but if he doesn't say he's my boyfriend, then that's not true. right? The boyfriend and parent child is different. Yeah, this is true. This is true. You're right. But I think that's important that you're saying the same. Yes, it's different, but it's the same in the sense that Yumi, well, sometimes she did claim you and sometimes she didn't, but it's, if it's not mutual, if I think I'm hearing what you say, if the other person doesn't want to claim you, then you're not claimed. Yeah. That is what I'm saying. I think there's something very distinct about that claiming. I have another relative from my birth father's side of the family who has 100% claimed me and is like my cousin, my cousin, you know, and who has a sibling who really I could be nobody. Do you know what I mean? Like, does not want contact or to know me or anything. And that's, that's their choice, you know, and I'm not going to worm my way in, as you said. And the one who who does claim me, I feel like we enjoy a really wonderful relationship. And there are others who just don't for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to force myself on anyone. But I feel like, you know, I can call one person my relative and the other person is just mm-hmm. a person. Yeah, I totally understand that. Calling all support group facilitators or support group attendees or trainers for foster adoptive and kinship families. Creating a family has the resource for you. We have 25 curriculum. It makes it so easy to run a training or a support group. It is very participatory. We get people talking. We keep them talking. We end with two action points for them. It is just a terrific resource, and you can find out more information about it at parentsupportgroups.org. In adoption literature, there is the term the primal wound, and I know that you are aware of what it is, but just to make sure the audience is, which I think they probably are because we've talked about it, I'm not going to do justice to the depth of what it means, but it's that the act of adopting itself creates a wound, a primal wound, that is a hole that needs to be filled. I'm not sure that they would actually say that part about the hole, but it does create a wound because you have been separated from your birth family. Did you feel that growing up? I don't know if I felt it as a wound growing up, especially as a child, a young adult, a teenager. I don't know that I felt that aware of it. It's only, you know, kind of in retrospect, and looking at how I was or how I felt. I mean, I had a deep longing and a questioning. I had a lot of questions. I have a little bit of mixed feelings about the primal wound idea, because on one hand, I believe in it. And on the other hand, I feel like I don't want to be defined by that. (laughs) I've interviewed another adopted person, and 
She said, I object to the concept of womb because that means I'm injured and I don't feel injured and I'm not defined by an injury. But she said, but I do want to know the whole of me, which includes my biology. Yeah, so I, I, have, I have mixed feelings about it. I'll say this, I feel like I don't know if I have that primal wound that I was wounded as an infant. Although, you know, I have to say, having both of my children and my grandchild and seeing them at the age that I was during certain milestones, this is the age I was when I was born. This is me when I was a newborn. This is me when I was in the hospital. This was me in foster care. And this was me when I went to my family. It's kind of stunning. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? When I yeah. feel like I was not this blank slate from zero to four months old. Mm-hmm. I was like a living being and I experienced things that I don't know about. Mm-hmm. I experienced being in the hospital and having literally nobody come visit me. Mm-hmm. I know that for a fact. I experienced being in a foster care situation and I don't know what that was like. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I feel like my known life began when I went to my adoptive parents. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think more about that wound and how that may have impacted me when I see babies, you know, under four sure. months old. Yes, because you think of yourself. Yeah, of course, of course. And one other thing I'll say is that I've often said I I don't know if I was wounded as an infant. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. I mean, I think there have been a lot of studies that show that, you know, if you don't have sufficient X, Y, and Z bonding and connecting and all these things at these young ages, that there's going to be consequences for that. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's probably true. But I feel like it was definitely a wound to be rejected or left as an adult. Sure. That was something that was very yes. deeply felt. And yeah. I was conscious of it. It was something that I was conscious of as an adult person. And that I felt, okay, maybe not the primal wound, but that was a big wound. Yeah, I can definitely, absolutely understand how you would come from that. Adoptees often hear the phrase, you're so lucky. <laughs> and can you talk to us about why that is so off the mark, even for someone who was raised in a loving, not necessarily idyllic, but certainly a fine upbringing? Why is the you're so lucky comment so misguided? Because I feel like it leaves out a large chunk of the picture. <laughs> yes, maybe I was lucky to be with this family, and I truly believe that. But I was also unlucky Mm -hmm. in the original losses Mm -hmm. and the ongoing losses after that. I had a lifetime of ongoing losses and not knowing so many things, not knowing so many people. And there's a lot of loss. So I think what it is, it's, it's a glossing over and it's a trying not to acknowledge the rest of it. And it also kind of plays a little bit into, and I know that many adoptees have said this, you know, then you should be grateful. You should be grateful for being so lucky. And I I feel like, you know, those things kind of go hand in hand. And as I said, I do feel grateful for for much of it. And there's a lot that I don't feel grateful for. I've wrote this once about the idea of feeling grateful. All parents hope at some point our kids appreciate what we did. But that's different from that you should be grateful. Yeah. And in my experience, when they hit somewhere around 25, that you could expect a certain degree of 
you know, you hope that they then look back and say, oh, yeah, you know, you guys weren't so bad. But it's that you're so lucky implies that then you have to be grateful. And no child, yes. if you choose, if a child chooses to be grateful, well, then you as a parent are a lucky parent. But no child should have the obligation. Exactly. Because we had kids, we brought kids into this world, be they adopted or birthed, because we wanted them. And I'm sure you've read Angela Tucker's book of that yes. very title, You Should Be Grateful. And she pretty much says it all. Yeah, she does say it all. Yeah, we interviewed her uh, a couple of months ago when it first came out. Yeah. She's a good friend. Oh, is she? She's terrific. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy her. Yeah. You guys are not all that far apart because you're in California, right? Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard about our free courses? If not, you need to know about them. The Jockey Bean Family Foundation supports us to offer you these free courses. We have a library of 12 courses on our website. You can check them out at bit.ly slash JBF support. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash JBF support. All right. One part of your book that I didn't really expect was your discussion about being biracial. You were raised by Japanese American parents, but you sometimes felt not Japanese enough because of your white biological father. So how have you made meaning out of your biracialness? I thought it was such an interesting part of the book. As I said, I wasn't necessarily expecting that. So I I truly enjoyed that part when you discussed it. Mm, well, it's certainly been a, a lifelong journey. And it's it's another thing where I really appreciate my parents being very matter of fact about it. You know, they would say you're hambun hambun, which means you're half and half, but they didn't dwell on it or make me feel like I was less than. And I also wrote a lot about I had kind of a half and half existence with my family, and my extended family and our church that we belong to. So on the weekends, my life was very, very Japanese American. You know, we spent all day at church. We spent time with our relatives who lived very close by. But during the week, we lived in a, a small, pretty white little town. And all of my classmates, neighbors, the whole community was pretty much white. So it was just like an interesting, all I can say is half and half experience, you know, and I kind mm-hmm. of went back and forth between the two and how people saw me. And I think it also depended on how much contact people had with my parents, you know, Mm -hmm. that if they saw me as Asian or not. And when I left the East Coast and moved to California, I really struggled with not having my parents as kind of an anchor in that community. Interesting. And there were times that I did not feel accepted or seen by Japanese American or Asian American community. I wrote about this in an essay once, but I don't think it's in the book. I was teaching at a community college and they had an Asian faculty association and I showed up and somebody came up to me and said, what are you doing here? And I was just (laughs) like a deer in the headlights or people would say to me, oh, you're married to Ito. You're married to an Ito, implying that, you know, my husband must be Japanese, but I'm not. And that really shook me. Because you were raised in, in an environment where people assumed you were raised by Japanese parents. So anybody who knew your parents, your racial identity was, in fact, people probably didn't realize outside that you weren't full Japanese, I would assume, if they saw you with your parents. Yes. Well, there were different, there were different experiences there. I, I'll, I'll say another little anecdote, again, not in the book, where we always spend our vacations down in Florida. We would drive down 
And my father told the story about how they went to register for a hotel and the hotel clerk threatened to call the police on my parents because they thought that they had kidnapped me and that I was a little white baby. And because there's no way that these, you know, Oriental people would have a white baby or a white looking baby. Interesting. We jumped in the car and took off and found another place to stay. But he, he tells that story that people didn't think that I should be with them. Yeah. Interesting. We so often think of the issues with transracial adoption being that children are raised by usually white parents. That's not exclusively that case, but in your case, it was quite different. You were raised by the same race as your birth mother. I often call myself an upside down transracial adoptee because according to the (laughs) definition, a transracial adoption is when the parents and child aren't of the same race. And in fact, I was not completely of the same race as them. So sort of half and half. But thinking of like, if you're a biracial child of color raised by white parents, it is possible to not have any contact with the community of origin of that child. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. possible to be raised in racial and cultural isolation. And I've heard a lot of that going on. Mm -hmm. But for me, that was not possible because we lived in dominant culture. And they didn't have to go out of their way to True. help me get to know white people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, as, I don't know if you remember that commercial back in the day where it says, Marge, you're soaking in it. <laughs> and meaning the palm olive uh, dishwashing liquid. Oh. <laughs> and I would be like, yeah, I was soaking in yeah. it. You know, I watched TV, all the media, everything around me, everybody in my town, people in school. Yeah, you and, were predominantly, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so my parents didn't have to do this extra work to, connect me with my culture the way that white parents do when they have a child of color and there are not those people around. Yeah, that makes good sense. And yet you identified as a Japanese American growing up. I did. Yeah. And at one point when your aunt, your father's sister had said, oh, if I had only known, I would have taken you in. I would have adopted you. And you talk about, oh, well, wait a minute. I would have lost so much. You know, my my Japanese-ness because you would have then been a classic right-side-up transracial adoptee. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I always assumed that I resembled my birth mother more. And as it turned out, when I met my birth father's family, the resemblance there was so strong that it was kind of shocking. Uh And I feel like I probably would have just blended in and I don't know if anybody would have even noticed or thought. It's interesting. My husband said, honey, if you were raised, you know, in that family, you would have been just sort of a funny looking white kid (laughs) or like something like, is there something different about you? But it wouldn't have been completely obvious. Yes, it wouldn't have stuck out. Something I wanted to just touch on briefly, you at some point, you started working in the adoption world, but it made, the main thing is that it brought you in contact with adoptees. And you talked about how important that has been in your development. I thought it would be helpful if you shared a bit of that. Yeah, well, it's been, it's been everything for me. And I mean, I don't know if you remember, but my first contact started when I was 13. And I read this book by an adoptee, an adoptee memoir by Florence Fisher, and she uh-huh. had founded Alma, an adoptee organization. And I started attending their meetings when I was 18. So I first became connected with other adoptees when I was still in college. And I can't even 
say the impact that that had on me with other people who mm-hmm. validated my feelings, who supported my experience, who understood exactly what I was going through. Mm-hmm. I mean, that meant everything. And I have met adopted people who are 40, 50, 60 years old. It's like, I never talked to another adopted person. I'm like, well, not that you know of, but yeah. you know, like where they really feel like they've never... They feel isolated. They feel yeah. isolated. They never felt like they've had that community. And I just feel like that is one of the things that I treasure most is my adoptee community. And I've had many, many different forms of my adoptee community. I, you know, I've Asian adoptees and biracial adoptees and adoptees who are parents and now aging adoptees because we have our issues too. And I feel like to be in community has been a tremendous source of support for my entire life. And I would Mm -hmm. be lost without them. Mm -hmm. One final question. I was left wondering, as far as you know, has your birth mom, Yumi, read the book? And if so, has it impacted your relationship? I don't know. I don't know. I did let her know about the book and uh, we're currently not in contact. So you have no idea. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't know whether to hope that she does or doesn't read it. I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. I feel the same way. I don't know what I hope for. I hope for peace for both of us going forward. That's that's what I would like. Yeah. That's a beautiful wish. I did feel it was brave of you because knowing how much you desired that relationship, it took courage to write this book. And I'm I'm glad you had the courage. Thank you. Sometimes I'm glad, sometimes I'm not so sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, it's it's been a real emotional journey since the book has come out and um oh. I've heard that word brave a lot. And sometimes I think in my head, I don't know, brave or foolish, brave yeah. or foolish. <laughs> There's know. a fine line between the two. <laughs> there is a, fine a very fine line between those two. Yeah, it, there really is. Well, whether you were brave or foolish, Susan Kiyo Ito, I am so thankful that you wrote this beautiful book, I Would Meet You Anywhere, an adoption memoir. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation and your readership. Let me do a shout out to Vista Del Mar. They have been a longtime supporter of both Creating a Family, the nonprofit, as well as this podcast. Vista Del Mar is a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They have a number of different services. They can do a home study only service. They also have a full service infant adoption. They can do international home studies as well as post-adoption reporting. And they have a foster to adopt program if you're interested in foster care. You can find them online at vistadelmar.org slash adoption.